Anyong, welcome to I've Made a Huge Mistake, an Arrested Development podcast. I am your host, Darren Husted, and with me today I am joined by Trisha Ellis. Hello, Trisha. Hello. And CJ Fusco. Hello, CJ. Hello, Anyong. Anyong. <laughs> and uh, we're covering the second episode of Arrested Development. Um, now, this is the first episode of the initial order which was given after the pilot was made the pilot was made a few months before this episode so obviously there were no sets for the pilot um in this we get introduced to the first set properly for the uh, model home and for um lucille's um apartment i guess is how americans would say i was about to say <laughs> flat balboa towers <laughs> yeah yeah balboa towers and we've already had the the like the location for the banana banana stand is the same as it was in the pilot so, you know, we're kind of getting to know the family, but it's important because, you know, when Fox ordered the pilot, they gave also, you know, the, this first series order was for 13 episodes. And um, I don't know if people really notice this, but the martyr storyline, which gets introduced in a couple of episodes time, actually finishes on episode 13. Mm-hmm. So they had um, a, like a number of things plotted out. Um, which gets set up in this episode in particular, that actually just run for the first 12 episodes up to episode 13, and then they stop, and then they go away, and they never come back. <laughs> um, so there's stuff, but there's also stuff that gets set up here that doesn't get paid off until the very, very last episode. So, um, but, you know, without any further ado, I'm going to give you the summary that comes with the uh, DVD of the first series that I have. Um, the episode's written by Mitch Hurwitz and John Levenstein. It's directed by Anthony Russo of the Russo Brothers. They directed the pilot together, um, but they alternate episodes from here on out. Um, it was broadcast on the 9th of November 2003, uh, one week after the pilot. And the summary is as so. Michael realises that running the company isn't going to be as easy as he thought, especially since his father seems to be pulling some strings from inside the joint. So, um, Trisha, did you watch this uh, series when it was actually airing on Fox the first time around? Uh, I did not watch the first season of it. I think it's one of the situations where I bought the first season on DVD for like $9 at a Best Buy and uh, watched it in probably a weekend and then my husband and I started watching um yeah the seasons roughly as they aired afterward and CJ did you watch it when it was first on no actually I didn't I remember hearing a lot about how cleverly it was written um but um yeah I'm not sure why I remember seeing one episode I don't remember which episode it was and I remember thinking oh yeah this is something that I would like um, but the impression that I get is kind of that Fox, I don't know, did they move it around a lot? It seems like they didn't really advertise or something because it seemed like I really came to the show way after. They advertised the first season like crazy before it aired. My husband was just talking about how he was determined not to watch it because it was so overpushed during oh, the World yeah. Series, I think. He said he'd seen so many commercials, he had decided it was never going to, you know, he never wanted to hear it again. But then they never advertised it. Like, they really didn't push it after it premiered. Well, they just kind of buried it. Here's the thing that people will notice, which is I am doing these episodes in the order that they appear on the DVDs rather than the episode, rather than the order in which they aired. Because the order in which they aired, Fox tended to move them around a little bit. And for the first season, the finale didn't actually go out within the Nielsen window, it actually went out in the middle of June. So, oh. <laughs> so that shows you how much Fox valued it by the time it got to the end of the first season. Right. And if you actually watch some of the outtakes, I think on season one, they have all the, you know, like the blooper reel, uh, which I think is on the third disc. But if you watch that at the very end, you get David Cross giving like a really, really angry speech about how poorly Fox has promoted the program and basically just letting off a a tirade of of swearing and just being really mad at how poorly it's been treated uh, and kind of... But he's also, if I recall correctly, wearing like the (laughs) Mrs. Doubtfire style suit while he's doing it. Do you know what? It might be season two because I think it's stuff that's in the attic. So it might be season two. But on one of of the the DVDs, he gets super angry at how poorly Fox promoted the show. Yeah, just... That might be one of the things... Just continuing Fox's uh, run like with Futurama (laughs) and the original run of Family Guy just cancelling things way before they deserve their, their cancellation. Yeah. Now, there are three main strands to this episode, the first of which is Michael trying to get the flight records from 
um, well, from whoever has them. <laughs> um, you know, he first of all, he figures out where they are and then um, they get burnt down. So, you know, he kind of moves on from that quite quickly. Um, there's also within that storyline, we have T-Bone, who we meet. We met briefly in the pilot, but played by a different actor. Right, and who's played here by... <laughs> yeah, he's a flamer. Yeah. And um, I, well, I mean, I just want to kind of go over like T-Bone's introduction this time because um in the the previous in the pilot he was just on the on the next part and you saw george michael uh, george michael george senior in prison having the time of his life and he says hey t-bone and he kind of like does like a high five and that's the only that's the only bit you get uh and this time we get kind of a classic thing that will happen with uh michael which is he will make a joke as people enter who don't know the setup for the joke <laughs> And right. he does this quite a lot. And this right. is kind of like a trademark of his where he will joke about something that seems inappropriate to the new person, but to the viewer, obviously, it's extremely funny. And we get this situation with T-Bone where... And now, I don't think I don't know if you noticed this, but T-Bone has given George Sr. a nickname, which is Pumpkin. <laughs> and um, they don't draw attention to it, but no. T-Bone just walks up and says, what's up, Pumpkin? And George, <laughs> George Sr. says that, hey, T-Bone... And he says, T-Bone's my roommate, which, of course, that's not the appropriate term for sharing a cell in prison. But that's what I love about George. Mike, George Sr. is being like kind of very inappropriate about what prison is here. You're doing time. I'm doing the time of my life. Um, you know, a, a kind of a trademark of Arrested Development is to leave like a long silence after a joke doesn't work. He's checking out today. Yeah. Well, because every vacation's got to come to an end. And, you know, it works for us, but for T-Bone, this seems a little flippant. And, of course, George Sr. says... Just made a fool out of yourself in front of T-Bone. And this scene is so important because it's setting up George Sr. in prison. In the pilot, he wasn't in prison, apart from at the very, like, at the little tail end. Right. So this is the first time we've seen him in prison with Michael visiting him and kind of the interaction, um, you know, and the way that that works. Um, and... You know, so I, I think it's kind of like an important thing. Also, it sets up Michael trying to run the company without the influence of his father, but being unable to do that because George Sr., of course, you know, won't tell him where the flight records are. He sends T-Bone to work at the banana stand. <laughs> you know, he's he's trying to control things. And it's funny because we'll see the same thing in a couple of scenes time with um, uh, Michael doing the same thing to his son. It's, yeah. it's just like, and that's what I kind of love about this show is how carefully they mirror everything that George senior does ends up trickling down through his sons in some way. Yeah. The, um, I think this is an important scene for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, before the podcast, we were talking about how what's so impressive about this episode is that, um, you know, you think of rest of development as being one of these shows that's kind of, eminently quotable and a lot of the quotes that we remember are right here in, in not only in this episode but in this first scene you know the no touching and uh always money in the banana stand which i'm sure we'll get to later um but um i think the important thing that this scene really sets up is it's a really subtle thing but um if you notice a lot of the problems on the show come from drastic miscommunication and misunderstandings, uh, especially on the part of Michael. Um, you know, I have kind of a, a running theory about the show that Michael, although he's the good guy, he's kind of the villain of the show in a way, because if he would just listen to people, a lot of these problems could be avoided. And that's kind of encapsulated by the whole. It's always money in a banana stand. And I also think that the, um, the, the way that George Sr. and Michael interact, and then the way that he treats George Michael, it's like, he thinks that he's doing everything right and he thinks that he's being a better father than his father was. And then he does the exact same thing. Like he said, like it, as soon as the next scene or the, as soon as he is in a scene with George Michael, he is telling him how to run his business and he orders him to hire someone. And uh, he sort of belittles him a little bit with the uh, Mr. Manager right. <laughs> correction. So it's, yeah. it's the exact same thing that his father has done to him. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really, I like that first scene a lot. I especially like that. Um, uh, George Sr. seems so relaxed and, you know, he seems almost like he's just sort of coasting through that scene. And I, I like how that's 
contrasted with the last scene where he's having a freak out and screaming no touching with his hands in the air. <laughs> like, almost Homer Simpson strangling his son. Um, I think that that's a really nice bookend. That The first scene, he seems like he's, he really does seem like he's on vacation. Well, I mean, we've, we've just briefly said Mr. Manager, so let's kind of touch upon the other part of this A-plot, which is um, the burning down of the banana stand. Now, the episode actually starts with the with John Beard reappearing, this time without his moustache, <laughs> Uh, that he had lost between the pilot and here, and talking about... Um... Another setback for the once-prominent Bluth family as their frozen banana stand, a Newport Beach landmark, burns to the ground. A delicious whodunit after this. That's an important thing, is they set up who burnt down the banana stand. It's not much of a mystery, but it's it's kind of like um, the, the main kind of part of the, the A-plot is, you know... We know that the banana stand is going to burn down. Who burnt it down? And obviously with, uh, you know, T-Bone being a flamer, he obviously suspicion is cast upon him first. And once he realises what's going down later on in the episode, he does get out of there quite quickly. Another misunderstanding on Michael's part and what, what that means, flamer, right? He immediately assumes something that is not correct. We know that the banana stand is going to burn down. T-Bone, you know, he has been sent essentially on a task by George Sr., but it's not to burn down the banana stand. It's to burn down the flight records. So it's funny that, you know, Michael is trying to kind of stop him from doing one thing and he doesn't realise that his father's doing another thing, which, you know, is something else that happens to Michael quite a lot. George Michael, in the pilot, it was established, um, you know, quite emphatically that he has a crush on his cousin, something which will, of course, be a running joke for all 53 episodes, almost until the very last scene of the... The, the final episode, this is like kind of the big storyline with George Michael. And yeah. we're given in kind of quick succession, we get, you know, uh, maybe not letting him in, use the bathroom. She's kind of jumping on the bed saying, get up, which I've got to be honest, that doesn't actually seem to fit with her personality. She doesn't no. seem like a hyper kind of kid. Like she's usually, I mean, this is kind of summed up when everyone is like kind of lazing around on the couches as if there was a gas leak. <laughs> They're actually, you know, the Fiunkes are not this kind of energetic. So I think it's funny that in this little kind of quick succession of, of scenes, we get George Michael being kind of pushed to the edge of wanting to work at the banana stand more. As, as a quick, as a quick aside, um, I'm a, uh, uh, one of my many hats is, is a teacher. And a lot of times um, there's a little bit of a low energy in the room. And I can't help it. Half the time I, I end up saying, "What is there a carbon monoxide leak in this room or something? <laughs> and of course, nobody gets it. But that's kind of the, as long as you get it, you make yourself laugh. That's the, uh, that's the rewarding part. George Michael wants to work more in the banana stand, which his father thinks is because, you know, he likes working, which is a trait that he admires, you know. And of course, we get a flashback later on to, you know, the summer of 1980. Um <laughs> when when Michael um, himself was trapped in that banana stand by his own father. So um, both Michael and George Michael seem to value work. And of course, this is a direct contrast to every other person <laughs> in the entire of this family, with the exception possibly of George Sr. Because as we get into the show, there's always a lot of flashbacks of George Sr. doing, you know, a lot of work. You know, he's built the prison that he's ended up in. Here, you know, we get again, you know, the whole... I mean, I love... I just love the Mr. Manager scene so much. I'm going to give you a promotion. Welcome aboard, Mr. Manager. Wow, I'm Mr. Manager. Well, manager. We, we would just say manager. And you can hire an employee if you need one. Do you think I need one? Don't look at me, Mr. Manager. Because every single time George Michael says it, Michael just <laughs> keeps correcting him. Right, it's up to me now. I'm Mr. Manager. Manager, we, we, we just say... Uh, I know, but you just... It doesn't matter who. It sounds weird to say that these two actors have chemistry, but they work so well together. Yeah, that's And true. Michael Sarah, Michael Sarah has such great timing with, with, um, with uh, Jason Bateman that whenever they're doing these scenes, which are just the two of them, um, and there's a few coming up in the next few episodes where it's just kind of like a back and forth and they know exactly how to hit the punchlines. And it's such like such a funny scene. Um, it finishes, as it often will do, with Michael ignoring the wishes of his son and kind of wandering off. <laughs> um, and in this case, he goes to the fridge and he finds something. My favorite joke in the series. <laughs> um, in the model home, he goes into the freezer. Michael goes into the freezer and he pulls out a paper bag. And um, clearly labeled on the paper bag is a note that says, Dead dove, do not eat. 
Um, at which point Michael opens the bag, looks inside, and then kind of half looks at the camera and says, I don't know what I expected. Uh, and then he goes into the living room where Job is, you know, half passed out on the couch, asks about the dead dove, and Job says, you didn't eat that, did you? Um, I don't know why. That just <laughs> that just tickles me. I, I just love that so much. Now, here's, here's something that that is setting up that you won't realize for, like, another, uh, I think, 12 episodes. Right. Um, but, you know, that's why they always leave a note. Um, <laughs> my favorite and it's episode. and it's so funny that now you know we meet Lindsay and tobias here lying around on the couch and um they i think i i mean i would call this the b plot i don't think we can call the job stuff the b plot but this is definitely the b plot which is tobias and his newfound career as an actor look at me i'm an actor <laughs> an actor for crying out loud i mean and how he he goes um, like he's he's trying to find he's trying to find. Um, what's funny is he sums up his life as an actor, talking about rejection and how he's got to have the heart of. Um, does he say the heart of a lion? The heart of an angel and the, and the skin of an elephant, which I I noted because <laughs> yeah. I love the way he pronounces elephant. But in this business of show, you have to have the heart of an angel and the hide of an elephant. Beautiful. Everyone, like, if you watch the show, you know he's not an actor. You know, he got caught up on a boat full of um, <laughs> full of homosexuals. Like, he, he he's not an actor. He, he, was, he accidentally dressed as a pirate because of an offhand remark that Michael said. So, yeah, it's... And then, obviously, you know, he um, <laughs> he does the, uh, the excuse me line. Excuse me! And then he stops and then goes... Excuse me. And then just, like, leaves the room. Yeah, it's a great introduction of another running gag of Tobias saying something that he's hoping will make everybody laugh to cover his own his own pain, yeah. and then he goes and cries <laughs> in the shower over and over and over again. I think every scene he's in in this ends with, aside from the audition, him leaving. Um, and most of the time, yeah, he goes and sits in the shower and cries. I think this is the only time <laughs> yeah. he doesn't immediately go and take a sadness shower. Where we're actually, we're introduced to a very subtle um, foreshadowing of a subplot later on, when whenever we see him in the shower. I don't know if you want to spoil it now, but... Um... <laughs> well, I think we can touch upon that after, like, when we get to the kind of the punchline of this, this B-plot. Right. We get here, of course, this is where Michael orders, um, you know, George Michael that, you know, he's in charge of who he employs at the banana stand, except that this time it's going to be maybe. And she's and of course, he only wanted to work more in the banana stand to get away from her. And this is something which will happen quite a lot to George Michael throughout the run of the show, which is he will do stuff in an attempt to get away from his uh, passion for his cousin. And he will end up in a situation with his cousin, you know, when they're kind of building up why George Michael wants to get away from maybe. They, they do a quick cut to inside a car. Now, this is actually kind of a little out of sequence because um, this is, um, you know, this is the car uh, where they're not allowed to have ice cream uh, in the car. And uh, this is actually George Sr.'s car, but Michael kind of doesn't know about it for five or six episodes. Oh, yeah. So, when we, see that. so when we see this quick cut to inside the car and Michael is driving it, it's out of sequence by at least a couple of months. So I, I guess, you know, it's just it's just for the, the wonderful joke of Tobias where he's like, you know, we're, we're asked to elbows. Would you mind sitting on your cousin's lap? <laughs> Bumpy road like, coming up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I don't even know why Michael announces that. Like, what is everyone <laughs> in the car going to do? Brace for impact? It's such a weird... But it's a funny... It's just a funny little quick thing. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to point out they shouldn't have that car yet. They don't even have the stair car at the moment. Like... We're still in the process of things being torn apart. So, I, and I have to say, I'm a I'm a pretty like big time car guy, and um, just the the choice, the casting of the car is perfect. It's like a late '80s, early '90s Mercedes <laughs> S class, which is like okay, that was a big deal car, but it kind of sets up the family as being a family who was once prominent and wealthy, but you know now they're kind of coasting on fumes. They're they're living off of the nice stuff they had. 10, 15 years. So I'm going to say, Trisha, you did notice that someone is missing in this episode. Yes, uh, there's no Buster in the whole episode. And I I can't remember if there's another episode that's Buster-free. But uh, this one, it really kind of... It, it would stand out, I think, if it weren't such a strong episode. I usually adore Buster. Um, 
but oh, yeah. this is one of my favorites, even though he's not there, which is kind of a bummer. I don't know if there's some sort of um, off-camera reason for it. I, I looked around a little bit, but I guess he just wasn't written into it. Here's the thing. I think this is setting up, and this is something that was obviously established quite you know, forcefully in the pilot, which is that they basically keep Byron Bluth busy by sending him to do various scholarly pursuits. Uh, I believe is how he refers to them in a, in a few episodes' time. Um, now, the next episode is called Bringing Up Buster, so it's essentially all about Buster. Um, but uh, the reason that the next episode is all about Buster is because he has nothing to do. Like, hmm. the money that he's paying for him to do cartography lessons, <laughs> $80,000 a pop or whatever it is, um, they run out, like, after this episode. So in this episode, they still have some money, um, and I think that's that's kind of let like him being absent is lending credence to the fact that he's clearly off somewhere at a dig, you know, <laughs> digging up big rocks or whatever it is. And he he returns next week, and they make it kind of explicit that they've run out of money for just to kind of keep him occupied. So anyway, in this A plot, we get to meet a we get to meet another character who will only be in one episode. I mean, technically speaking, T Bone was in two, uh, but we get to meet Luz who is the uh, housekeeper. Um, now, she, she will. she's only in this episode, and in a few episodes' time, you know, by the time we get to episode six, it's Lupe who is the housekeeper. And then in flashbacks, it's Lupe who's the housekeeper. <laughs> and, it, like, the whole thing, it's as if Luz never existed. <laughs> she's introduced kind of like dragging a coat, and that is her runner for the rest of the episode. <laughs> she's... As she, as she tries to... You know, Michael tricks his mother into revealing the... Um, the location of the where the flight records are uh, by saying that you know the government are going to take away all of her, her furs, and that forces Luz to to ride the bus and end up kind of um, at the storage unit just after T Bone has burnt it down. I actually, um, when I rewatched it, um, and the first scene you see her dragging the furs out of the apartment, and without remembering it was a line on the show, I said, oh, that poor woman, at the same time as Michael said, that poor woman. <laughs> it was such a, I felt so much empathy for her. It looks so hot. Well, I mean, we also get a couple of really, really choice lines from Lucille, <laughs> where she says, you know, she's kind of shouting at Luz, and, um, you know, she's, uh, she, says, <laughs> she's, she says, Luz, that coat cost more than your house. Oh, that's how we joke. She doesn't even have a house. That's how we joke. Yeah. That's how we. That's how we get along. <laughs> yeah, we also get like a really great kind of Lucille exchange where she gives away that sorry, uh, George Senior is on the phone. Then why don't you marry an ice cream sandwich? <laughs> and, and you know this uh, that kind of like I, I just love that and the fact that then she she can't remember that she's lied about talking to Job like two minutes after she's lied about talking to Job. In the pilot, and I, I talked about this in the other episode, it seems like Lucille is more supportive of Job than she ever will be for the rest of the show. <laughs> like, she bought the... Um, the Aztec tomb. Aztec tomb, that's it. Which saying it's going to be a career maker. And here she's forcing Michael to give Job something to do. And um, as we're at that point, I think we should touch upon it. This is the running gag of this is... Job throwing things into the ocean. Oh, I love it. Um, I love it. From when they came. <laughs> yeah. Which, yes. you know, really? Birds come from the ocean. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Sure, Job. Sure they do. You know, we well, we get a bit of him with the dead dove, at the, you know, with the do not eat. Um, and then obviously we get a quick cut of him trying to, you know, ask what the return policy is on animals. <laughs> which suggests that Job does this quite a lot in terms of his magic act. When when we get towards the end of this little runner, we get, you know, Michael talking about how his dad is treating him. And Job talks about... Um, Better than being treated like the goofball, the joker, the magician. I thought you were going to do like a trick there, like the fireball. Or yeah, I was. It didn't go off. God, these things never go off when you want them to. The least consistent trick. Which is yeah, true. Now, here's the weird thing. Here's the thing. He normally says illusion. Illusion, so. Michael. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the one. This is one of the few times where Job says the word "trick" instead of "illusion." Uh, but also, of course, that kind of ties into the the a plot of who burnt down the banana stand, and you think it might be Job with his misfiring fireball. Right. But yeah, so I mean, let's talk briefly about this kind of Job and the letter 
you know, him trying to throw it into the ocean for, which is such I mean, a lot of credit has got to go to um, Ron Howard as the narrator because he kind of sums up the absurdity of someone trying to throw a letter into the ocean. Job had not mailed the letter, but in an act of defiance, dramatically hurled the letter into the sea. And he, I think he says something along the lines of, it wasn't as easy as Job thought it was going to be. And he just... Will Arnett is such a good kind of like physical comedian that the way he does like the throw and the letter keeps coming back and he keeps throwing <laughs> it and picking it up. And the way they kind of just stay on him doing that for like 30 seconds, it's just such a, a great gag. And, you know, the way he kind of delivers all the lines about, you know, starting from, you know, you didn't eat that. And then kind of going through all of the, the kind of like the little bits where he keeps coming back to... Being, kind of being angry that he's been left out, but also not wanting to do the job. Um, <laughs> he just wants to be asked. He doesn't care what the job is. He just wants to be asked to do it. But then once he's asked to do it, he doesn't really want to do it. <laughs> well, that's another that's another reason why I think this is such a strong episode, um, is it sets up um, such long-term character arcs. If you think forward to uh, some of the Sitwell stuff that happens later, um, Job has such mixed feelings all the time about his treatment. You know, he wants to be a part of it, but then he resents it at the same time. You know, it's, it's you know, thinking forward the whole, like, he's honored that um, about the baseball glove, but then he throws it against the wall. You know, <laughs> preview coming attractions later on. He wants to be included in, in, um, in um, Michael's business, but then at the same time, he kind of resents that he's given such a menial task. Um, it's really forward thinking. I mean, it's, um, I watched this episode back to back with the pilot, and the pilot's a little bit more broad. It has some stuff that, that um, you know is a little bit wackier, um, but it's, I think it's really this episode that sets up the characters in a really forward-thinking way. And importantly, the letter pays off the you know the whole banana stand being burnt down thing. Like it's something that Michael says he can't trust to a postman, and all this. He's 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 letting Job know this is an important letter, but he's also letting the viewer know that this is an important thing to remember. And aside from like the whole gag of him trying to throw it in the ocean and all that, it is such an, it's kind of an important plot point that he's set up like really carefully, yeah. but you don't really notice it. And then when you're watching it again, you're like, of course, that's the insurance letter for, it's not just a MacGuffin. It's, it's, yeah, it's not just a MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an it's actual plot point. Yeah. It's an actual important thing. I, I adore how at the, when they're watching the banana stand burn down, it's kind of a very interestingly lit scene and, Michael asked Job if he remembered to send the insurance check, and he just scoots backward on the Segway. <laughs> like, he just <laughs> fades into the mist. It's wonderful. I really like that uh, that shot, and then gets chased after. Yeah, so let's get to the burning down, um, which is something that kind of escalates throughout the episode. Fro I mean, let's talk about maybe in her math skills, which... Um... I think she got an alligator <laughs> in math, so... <laughs> we should have expected this. Yeah. Hey, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, it's. I mean, it's funny because they set up, um, you know, that she's bad at math by this whole thing where she keeps taking a dollar and throwing a banana away, taking a dollar and throwing a banana away. But George Michael um, doesn't catch on to it until T-Bone says something. <laughs> <laughs> once, once they get T-Bone as an employee, they they get to this. They, we get to this wonderful point where both Lindsay and Maybe have been given jobs that other people should have had, essentially. You know, George Michael wanted to work in a banana stand alone, but now maybe he's working there, and then T-Bone's working there, which is a great... That's a great visual, by the way, the three of them in the stand. <laughs> like, the quick cut from George seeing you going, you put him in charge of the banana stand, to T-Bone standing behind both of them. Yeah, not a small man, Patrice O'Neill. No. He towers, over, he towers over both of them, and so, you know, the, the narrator kind of sums it up where... We get back from, like, a, an act break, and he goes... And so, Lindsay and Maybe separately went to the same restaurant to celebrate the jobs they hadn't actually performed with money they hadn't actually earned. <laughs> and I think that kind of sums up what's going on with the kind of Funke family. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> where they assume they've already done some work, so why not take the day off? I really like the scene as well with, um, with uh, Lindsay and Lucille uh, establishes... A sort of upsettingly hilarious running gag, which is Lucille um, insinuating that Portia de Rossi is overweight, which is hilarious and also kind of sad because she's, you know, written about having an eating disorder and stuff. But it's, right. it's just so consistent. The you might want to let the fire go out before you stick your face in it. Or I think it was in the pilot episode <laughs> yeah. where they're drunk at like a, you know, a Chili's or something and they knock over a dessert tray and 
Lucille, you know, <laughs> yeah. that that was going to be everything that Lindsay ate. Like, it's just, she's so <laughs> mean about it with no standing. Absolutely none. On the DVD, the menu plays um, a number of scenes over and over again on a little two-minute loop, which I'm going to admit sometimes I've just let play over and over because all the <laughs> jokes are so great. But one of the things, that, one of the jokes that is in there is when she goes, you know, your belt is supposed to buckle, not your chair. And that is like a, such a, I mean, obviously, um, you know, Lucille is known for being cruel, but that is a particularly cruel line. Uh, but also the, um, like you say, with the uh, the soaked in alcohol thing, that's actually, again, like a, another little kind of joke that she's ordering this banana that's on fire before mm -hmm. the banana stand gets set on fire as right. like a dessert. Yeah, it's good writing. Such a tiny little joke that you don't even really notice it. <laughs> Um, but kind of, let's get into the kind of the, the B plot, which is the which is Tobias's audition, where we get to meet Roger Danish, which I have to say is a great name. And of course, Roger Danish, as is the tradition of Arrested Development, is set up before we even meet him with a very quick like little visual joke of Lindsay and him having the best hair in high school, which right. of course looks ridiculous. Flock of seagulls kind of <laughs> hairstyles. Yeah. And then, of course, they make a joke about it when they meet again, and both of them still have ridiculous hairstyles. Although this, again, I think that you know they they set that up with Lindsay by deliberately having her have a terrible hairstyle for this episode because that's not her regular hair. Her regular yeah. hair looks great. There's a little bit of that ties in with the um, she's bought this super expensive shampoo, um, which kind of relates to the hair as well. So there's a kind of a bit of a hair gag going on within this episode with Lindsay. But I just want to talk about what I think is. I mean, possibly one of my favorite things in the entire show. And I'm probably going to say that almost every week about something. <laughs> but just the whole audition scene, which I love so much with the kind that of... great. How it's a simple one line. <laughs> they're having a fire sale. And Tobias Not if he does his job, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Tobias has interpreted it in the complete wrong way. First of all, I love it. Quick question, though. Am I panicked about the fire, or am I being brave for everyone else? The fire. It, it's it's a fire sale. Oh. <laughs> okay, I didn't... Um, well, let's give it a shot. Oh, my God! We're having a fire sale! Oh, the burning! Children, oh, this isn't a fever scene. Can't even see where the dove is. And I love when he's going, Oh, there's a fire sale, and he keeps just putting the word sail in because he can't. And then when asked if he wants to do it again by Roger Dana, she's like, Nope, no, nope. nope. <laughs> and look, he's never actually acted, but he is so committed to his method, <laughs> he's so sure of his technique. Despite Singing never amazing, doing it. amazing grace while rolling on the ground. <laughs> the way it's the way that scene is edited is just so perfect that it's like it's crazy. And I can also stand, understand why audiences in two thousand three probably would watch this episode and go, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> because it is just so it is so different to anything that sitcoms like were doing in two thousand and three, and even now. I actually noted that um that. There are so many jokes in this episode that are made by the editing. And yeah. it, his audition is one of them. And also when Job says that his dove tragically died in the middle of a performance. And then it just cuts to that CCTV footage of him in the pet store smashing the dove against <laughs> the door. Which is a really awful way to die, I would think, for the dove. Um, but yeah, this is another one where it's like just that cutting the scene up like that is so much funnier than it would have been any other way. It's, so much of this show is made in the editing room. It's I have a, uh, a legitimate question here. Is this the uh, the first network sitcom to not have a laugh track? No, um, I don't think no. so. Sports Night didn't have one. No. Oh, right. Well, Sports Night, yeah, first season did, though. Didn't it did it? for a, like ha part of the first season, I think, and then it, yeah. they cut it out and it was so much better. Um, right. I, I, do you know I, what I'm going to do? Do you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to blow both your minds, and I'm going to tell you that Mash didn't have a laugh. I was going to say I didn't think that Mash always had a laugh track. But yeah, I feel like it did for part drama of it. comedy, though. It's you know, Mash kind of straddled mm. that line a little bit. It, I mean, it was essentially. It, I mean, it wasn't a. It wasn't a three camera though. It wasn't. Right. It wasn't a multi camera. It was a single camera sitcom that had no laugh track, though. They also did add a laugh track, yeah. <laughs> and in in syndication, you could see it with a laugh track or see it without a laugh track, just oh, depending on which version they got. Yeah, so Mash had yeah. both, but it was single camera, so 
like this is you know this isn't unique but yet at the time this is you know one of the first i think modern family started a couple of years after this and the office too right the office was a little after but the office essentially was just copying the format yeah of the mm-hmm. office uk which right. didn't which have didn't a have a laugh track. Exactly. Yeah. yeah which yeah. was before this as well which was like 2000 2000 2001 somewhere around there and of course now i feel like an idiot because now i'm thinking well the simpsons of course didn't have a laugh track <laughs> but that's a little different yeah I guess. yeah um but yeah I, again like there's no way you could make that audition work if you were doing it in front of an audience it just there's no, no way to do it like the, it, the way they cut but i mean the singing is just so great um, and I don't, I don't even thinking of how he, how he got to that point. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> so I, like, uh, so the editing makes that work because I have no idea what the, his audition process was, where he ended up finishing up with him, like on the ground singing amazing grace. Um, but yeah. And then of course, as happens to Tobias a lot, I mean, it's funny actually, cause this, there's a kind of a, a, a quick little setup to this is Tobias gets off the couch and he ends up on a different couch <laughs> reading Tractopol, <laughs> which he mistaken he mistakenly took saying Actopol. Yeah. Yeah. But I love that he just flips to a page and goes, Oh, look at all these parts. <laughs> and it's such a it's such a quick little gag. But then when Michael turns up and sees that he's on this couch that's outside, he says to him kind of sarcastically, Oh, I see you got off the couch with him obviously being on the couch still, which is such a that is kind of that's the I find that's something that they'll do a lot with um Jason Bateman is he will always have these jokes where he's essentially saying he's been super sarcastic but playing it completely straight. Right. Um and of course he's the one who shows Tobias that there's you know here's here's the audition for this fire sale thing. <laughs> um and then uh, when we get out you know Roger Danish meets up with Lindsay again who of course he calls Lindsay Bluth and every single time he says Bluth Tobias goes Funke off camera. And which she never acknowledges. <laughs> yeah, she just keeps talking. Um, and of course, when Roger Danish says that the South Coast Boutique is having a fire sale. South Coast Boutique? They're having a fire sale? They're having a fire sale? And she delivers it exactly, of course. <laughs> and you just, see, Danish. you just see Tobias's face just drop. He realizes immediately <laughs> what's going on. And so, of course, then, you know, Lindsay gets the job. Uh, Tobias does something which he will do practically every single time someone else gets the the fortune that he should have had which is he he kind of doesn't acknowledge it and is kind of pretending to be happy and then he goes and cries in the shower <laughs> whilst wearing a pair of cutoffs which we we don't see fully here um you know those will not be established for another few episodes uh but it's on the rewatch it's great that you that they've gone to the trouble of but this is like i said you know like the first 12 episodes were planned as this arc so there's little things like that that they're setting up. And of course, you know, once Lindsay realizes that she's got a thousand dollars that she hasn't actually yet got, she, she decides to it. go to the restaurant. Yeah. And, you know, this is where we get the kind of the intersection of the A and the B story where George Michael and maybe are at the restaurant. And um, we, this is the first time that we hear Lucille referred to as Gangi um, by the right. by the grandchildren. And George Michael has the wonderful line of... What are they doing here? They're grown-ups. They're allowed to have fun whenever they want. We're kids. We're supposed to be working. We have to work. We're supposed to be working. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it also sets up the uh, the burning of the banana stand by George Michael freaks out when he realizes that the math is wrong and uh, maybe says, well, you know, what would Pop-Pop do? And then he sees the bananas on fire. And it's true. George, it's so out of character for George Michael to commit arson. Um, but it is absolutely in character for him to figure out, well, this is what my grandfather would do. He would burn down the fire stand or the banana stand. It is so perfect. Just the sins of the father just keep coming back over and over and over again. (laughs) They all try so hard to break away from their father figures, and yet they keep making the same mistakes. Um, Michael tracks down T-Bone and says, did you burn down the storage unit? And I love Patrice (laughs) O'Neill's delivery of... Almost done, I because yes. it's such a the way he says it like he doesn't try to deny it he doesn't try to like he just literally says yes but it, the way he just says those lines is just so much it's so fun and it comes right after um, he delivered man I'm just doing a banana this day for some reason the way he says that <laughs> just cracks me up it's wonderful so basically this ex-con is the most intelligent straightforward honest person in this episode right i mean he's the only one who's yeah. communicating clearly with everybody every time he's a flamer not an embezzler so <laughs> yeah exactly um and of course now this is where job comes in this is where we also get the payoff of the runner so we've you know we've had the a and b stories kind of get get into the point where 
<laughs> George Michael's going to be forced to burn down the banana stand. And Job is, you know, like busting our asses to deliver your mail is what he says as he drives <laughs> up to Michael. And um, it's funny because, like, you know, this is where, I mean, I, I love these two actors together uh, because I think, I mean, on the commentary for the pilot, you know, Jason Bateman says, like, the first time you see them in the pilot together was the first time they'd ever met. <laughs> and yet Will Arnett and Jason Bateman act like brothers so much and the dynamic is so perfect. And we get kind of one of their scenes where, you know, they kind of admit that they don't like their position in life, which is Job kind of being treated like the goofball, the joker, the magician. Um, and his fireball not going off. Uh, and and also Michael saying that, you know, like his dad doesn't trust him and he's treating him like a low-level employee, which of course is the exact same thing that he's doing to his son. But I like the kind of these moments of honesty between these two actors because... Like as crazy as some of the stuff in these episodes get, they 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 do find a way to kind of make it a little bit real, and I think kind of this little bit just before we get to kind of like the uh, you know the the burning, it's kind of a nice little quiet moment. Um, and on, at this point, I want to touch upon a cutscene um, because at this you know we get the um, <laughs> maybe maybe for some reason calls Michael, which you know is an unusual occurrence in itself. Because those characters don't really interact very often. And as we'll see in later episodes, when they do interact, things get very awkward. <laughs> um, but here, she calls up. Hello? Hey, Uncle Michael, it's me, Maybe. Hey, Maybe, where's George Michael? At the banana stand. He's about to do something really irresponsible. You think it's irresponsible? I'll be right there. In a cutscene, we stayed with Job and Michael. And Michael jumps on the back of the Segway. And... They ride off. And of course, the Segway is not made for two people. So it goes really, really slowly. And then Michael just jumps off and runs. Uh, and so they kind of cut that little bit out, which is a, it's a really funny... Out of the cut scenes in this episode, that's the one that's kind of the most amusing is this little this little gag about the Segway, which of course is kind of um, Job's trademark. But yeah, so... And then we get to the end of the episode, which of course is T-Bone... As, as George Michael builds a fire, you know, a, a load of kindling around the bottom of the banana stand he's just standing in there like a witch waiting to be burned or something (laughs) when do you get out of the banana stand already well here's the thing i don't if i'm t-bone i don't think george michael is going to go through with this because george michael seems like a sensible kid but you know t-bone only gets out of there when he realizes he's going to be blamed and then of course we get the last we get the callback to the mr manager thing where uh, george michael says i'm sorry dad i screwed it all up i've got no right to call myself mr manager (laughs) again you know, the, the chemistry between these two as father and son is so perfect. And this is where we kind of get the thing where Michael realizes that he'd done to his son what his father had done to him. And so he came up with a solution. And Michael just says, burn it down. And I love that within this little kind of whodunit thing, in the end, it's the person that you would think would be the most angry about it being burnt down. Who is the one who's <laughs> like, yeah, just burn it down. Because he, he kind of, you know, he doesn't like it. He's, he's And he's rebelling against his own father but just with the method that George Michael was about to use to rebel against Michael. And I, it's just so beautifully set up. The person least likely to burn down the banana stand is the one who did it, of course. And also, yeah, Lindsay uh, had predicted at the beginning of the episode uh, when uh, Michael made George Michael <laughs> hire maybe. She said, if I know my daughter, that stand won't be there in a week. Which is a lovely, uh, again, a lovely little kind of joke set up as with the letter. And then, of course, the narrator says, And so Michael, his son, and his brother together enjoyed the cathartic burning of the banana stand. As you said, this is where Job scoots off after realizing that he hadn't actually mailed the insurance Like check. Homer Simpson's into uh, a bush. Like he just, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, and then uh, Michael runs after him to catch him, obviously. Uh, and then we get kind of, um, you know, Lindsay sleeps through, hungover from celebrating her one day of employment, which it turns out she'd slept through. Uh, and Roger Danish calls her. Uh, she doesn't, you know, she's asleep. And then he tries calling Tobias, who is in the shower <laughs> crying. And this will become a, a kind of a recurring gag where people miss important phone calls. Uh, this will happen more than once to Tobias. <laughs> but this is the first occurrence of that kind of running joke. Um, and then, of course, you know, we get a nice exchange between Lindsay and Tobias when, you know, his, his conditioner gives him some self-esteem. Um, 
And then we get the payoff of the A plot, which is with Michael going back to the jail. I and love of course, this. you know, love it. the uh, the famous the famous joke about you know, I mean, I think at least three times throughout the episode, George Senior has said, "There's always money in the banana stand," but he says it and then always does a little wink, which of course <laughs> Michael does not notice. Um, and he says there was two hundred fifty thousand dollars lining the walls of the banana stand, and he says, "Cash, Michael." And he's like, I can't say it much clearer. There's always money in the banana stand. But of course he could say it clearer. Then that's like the, so many (laughs) problems on the show could be avoided if people just listened to one another and spoke clearly to one another. Um, It sets that up so perfectly. And it, it, almost every episode of the show, this happens. Um, You know, I think of um, even the episode where they go to Mexico and the back and forth. Uh, It's not a race thing. No, whoever gets there sooner, right? It's like that over and over again. (laughs) Just listen to what one another are saying for crying out loud. Yeah. And then, of course, we get the famous no touching from the guard. who, And that's the same guard who will say no touching for the rest of the first season. Every time someone says no touching, it's him. I think apart from the one episode, I think from Not Without My Daughter, when they, the, the guard with the daughter is not the same guard. But otherwise, we get some no touching. And George, of course, is, you know, like strangling Michael. Um, and that's kind of where things resolve before we get the uh, on the next. Um, you know. And I just wanted to say, like, this is its such a great episode for setting up all of the kind of stuff that is going to come up in the next kind of 12, 13 episodes. Um, I didn't touch upon this at the beginning, but I will tell you this. The writer of the, this episode, uh, he comes back to write another um, four or five episodes in the in the first season. And he writes Good Grief in the second season. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. he, he, John Levenstein, he, he wrote with uh, Mitch Hurwitz on the John Larroquette show. That's where they met. Uh, but he left after the second season to work on other things. Um, uh, I, I love it. I think that it's so solid. Um, I am a lot of the time when I think about the series, I don't think of Tobias as being one of my favorite characters because he's very broad. And like, I, I, I think I prefer a lot of the Lucille Bluth stuff and, and um, Lucille and Lindsay's interactions and things like that. But I love him in this episode, it, even aside from the amazing audition um, I love that he apparently just takes a shower in his mother-in-law's apartment in the middle of it because he's sad. Um, I love when he's trying to show how cheery he is about Lindsay getting the job. And he says, we're both actors. We're like the lumps, which is such a ridiculous <laughs> reference for a sitcom <laughs> that just cracks me up. Like I, I everything about him in this is, is, uh, I, I guess I really like when he's miserable. Um, and also I love that Patrice O'Neill was on the series. I kind of wish that T-Bone had come back. Um, I think that he was yeah. a, a really excellent counterpoint to the Bluth, somebody who is so not high strung and doesn't appear to be a complete narcissist or even, you know, anything other than an arsonist. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that his character is just a, a delight in this early in the season. But yeah, I think this episode is definitely an A in my book. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't disagree with anything Trisha said. I mean, this, um, you know, every once in a while, um, just on a rainy day kind of thing, I'll uh, watch a random episode of Rest and Development. And I mean, this is one of the, the go-to episodes. Um, you know, I watched it back-to-back with the pilot episode, as I saw, as I said. Um, but, um, you know, I was amazed just within the first 10 minutes how many of the um, recurring plot lines and classic jokes are just set up right away in this episode. Um I mean, yeah, I agree completely. It's an A. I think um, Job gets some great stuff in this episode. Uh, although, you know, Buster is sorely missed. It sets up a lot of the um, the, the plot lines that we've come to know and love from Arrested Development. Um, I think it's one of the best episodes, to be honest. I think it's one of the, the cream of the crop. I just want to, as the show goes on, I want to keep account of who is living where. And at this particular moment, who is living in the model home? So we've got, um, you know... We've got uh, Michael and George Michael, and we've got the Funkes, and that is all that he's living in the model home. We don't know where Job is living at this precise moment. And obviously, Buster is usually at home with Mother, but in this particular case, he's away. And George Sr. is in prison. So as the show goes on, we'll keep track of where all the characters are, because, um, you know, for seasons two and three, George Sr. is most definitely not in prison. (laughs) Which I think is something that also helps the show is the fact that they they were willing to change things because this kind of, you know, the visiting of the prison becomes such a common thing throughout the first series that when you get to the second series and you realize, oh, they're never they're never going back to prison. It's such a weird thing that they kind of change the one of the main kind of running jokes. Um, But so we get on the next and 
the narrator tells us that Job <laughs> protests the pet store's frozen dove exchange policy. She's such a specific thing. <laughs> of course, Joe protests it by throwing the dove into the sea and saying, return from whence you came. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, of course, we get a kind of callback to Joe wanting to be, you know, involved. And the narrator says, and Michael, realizing that the banana stand is the only profitable part of the Bluth Empire, decides to rebuild. And Job says, you couldn't have called me. I can't swing a hammer. And then, of course, Michael goes to hand him a hammer and he just rides away on his Segway <laughs> saying, i got a rabbit to buy. And then we get the final kind of gag where <laughs> we just see him walk up to the ocean and just drop a dead rabbit into the ocean. Which is great because even that gets an arc. I mean, he goes from, like, furiously trying to throw the, desperately trying to throw the letter into the ocean to just kind of throwing the bird into the ocean to just kind of, like you know, dismissively dropping the rabbit into the ocean. I mean, it's a great arc. Yeah. I love it. It fits in and, with uh, Job's uh, sort of fantastic, idealized version of himself that he's always standing in, like, linen on the beach, and, you know, flowing with, like, that's the thing he would think of to do. Like, I'm upset with my treatment in a store, so I'm going to go to the beach and hurl something right. into the ocean and make dramatic print pronouncements. He's, he's pretty wonderful for that. He's certainly the hero yeah. of his own story. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, CJ, do you have anything you wish to plug? Um, sure. Yeah. Actually, I have a uh, a couple of books out on the market. Um, if you're at all interested in either politics or literature, I have a uh, a book on how George Orwell's uh, writing has been used as political propaganda by both the left and the right. I know it's you know don't don't all run out and grab it at once. It's called R Orwell Right or Left. Um, and then I also, um, for a little bit of a change, have a book about haunted places in New England called Old Ghosts of New England, uh, which is a little bit of a travel guide. Uh, and I'm CJ Fusco on Twitter. I got in there early. And Trisha, do you have anything you wish to plug? Uh, well, on Twitter, I am uh, at MILF Parade because I like to take a lot of risks with my random followers. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, I am working on a podcast. By the time this comes out, then hopefully I will have released um, doing a podcast with a friend of mine called SadieCast, which is totally about an actually real and not made up um, 90s sitcom that we're not inventing so we can talk about a TV show at all, I promise. Um, it should be good or terrible. We'll see. On the next episode of this podcast, my guests for Bringing Up Buster will be Matt I'm going to say Baturak, but I have a feeling that might be wrong. But And uh, Alison Beans. Um, so they're going to join me for, for that episode. But I wanted to thank both of you, CJ and Trisha, for joining me on this particular episode. Well, thank, thank you, you for having me. This was fun. Goodbye. <laughs>